This is Georgiana Lotti, co-author of Forget the Funnel, a customer-led approach for driving predictable recurring revenue, and you are listening to The Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others, as one of the top marketing podcasts. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. All right, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Georgiana Lottie to talk about the book she has co-authored with Claire Solentrop, Forget the Funnel, a customer-led approach for driving predictable recurring revenue published by Lioncrest. Georgiana Lottie and Claire Solentrop co-founded Forget the Funnel, a consultancy that helps software-as-a-service teams reach and retain high lifetime value customers. Georgiana is a strategic advisor and speaker who's passionate about turning customer value into revenue-generating outcomes. An online marketer since 2000, she began her track record as a marketing executive and product growth advisor in 2010, working with high-growth recurring revenue startups. And interesting fact, She's from Canada. Everyone likes Canadians, you know. Not liking Canadians is an indication of a mental problem. <laughs> Georgiana, congratulations on Forget the Fun and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Wow, that was a great, great clip. Lo- love him. Oh, me too. Yeah. Now, you also Jim go Yaki. by uh, Gia? I do. Yes, you can go right ahead and call me Gia. I know okay. that Georgiana is a mouthful. It's, okay, it's all good. so I just didn't know if we were at that stage of our relationship where We're I there. Could, you know, I'll call you that. Okay. So what I want to do first off is thank a, a longtime listener uh, for introducing us and suggesting your book on the show. I get lots of recommendations from listeners and this listener is Torsten Hermann. And uh, do you know where he lives? Yes. He's in Germany. Did someone say Germany? Okay, so I lived in Germany for three years, so I earned the right to play that song whenever uh, Germany is mentioned. Torsten is the author of the German business novel, Last die Kunden kommen, ein Business Roman über inbound marketing and und account-based marketing. And he is the host of the podcast by the same name, Last die Kunden kommen, which means let the clients come. And... uh as the podcast name might imply, his podcast is in German, or as they say in Deutschland, Auf Deutsch, except when he interviewed Giolotti, right? That's right. Uh, yeah. That's right. I think I, I was his only English English episode. <laughs> yes, toll, toll, as they say in Germany. And I should also mention, uh, for those German speakers out there, the first 42 episodes of his podcast is his book for free, and it's uh, done by the author. So let me mention that you also have, in addition to this book, the Forget the Funnel workbook, which mm-hmm. is a free I've actually downloaded it. I've been poking around. It's 110 pages, and it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. It's very generous, and uh, I want people to know about it, and I'm going to include a link to it 
to how to download it at this episode's website page at Marketing Book Podcast. And it includes, uh, even includes videos. I, I think I, I saw that, right? Oh, yeah. It includes all kinds of stuff. There's, yeah, it, it, there are checklists and templates and uh, videos and, and whiteboards, uh, tools and things like that. There's all kinds of stuff in there. Yes, it's phenomenal. It's I can't believe you didn't uh, charge for it, but mm. <laughs> it's too late now. <laughs> so your book, uh, Forget the Funnel, it's, it's very well written. It's very clear. And Thank it's you. only 152 pages. Mm-hmm. It, it could have been... 452 pages. And for that, I thank you. But I just, I marvel at short books because they must be two or three times more difficult to write uh, than long books. It was, it was an effort to keep it short. That's for sure. And that's actually part of the reason why there's an accompanying workbook is that, you know, a lot of the implementation of the ideas in the book we could have included in the book, but we were like, nope, we want to keep this short. We want to keep to just, you know, what is going to be the most compelling thing to help people sort of decide that this could work for them. And so we tried to stick to that. And that's why the the workbook is for those who have been convinced and they want to start implementing. Great. And it's also short enough so like a, a CEO could read it on a flight. That's exactly right. So, as I said, your book got me excited, and longtime listeners are going to know why. Let's talk about something important. I loved the book, and it's in part because it focuses on the one thing that I have found gives marketers and salespeople and companies a superpower, an unfair advantage. And it seems to be the one thing that is the most difficult for companies to do, which is Talk to your customers. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? I'll never stop wondering why companies can't uh, sit down and talk to their customers like you describe in this short book. And I am not the only person who feels that way. I will now quote on page 144 where you write, We all know companies that claim to be customer-led or that claim to always put the customer first. For many, those claims are bullshit. All right. <laughs> so your book uh, was endorsed by a number of heavy hitters, including Rand Fishkin. And he is the founder of Spark Toro and Moz. And he's the author of Lost and Founder, a painfully honest field guide to the startup world, which was featured on episode 172 back in 2018. And that book is so good, I might actually go back and read it again. You don't even have to be a a tech startup person to enjoy the story he tells in that book. And it's just, just amazing. I loved it. But here's what Rand Fishkin had to say about your book. The SparkToro team paid thousands of dollars to work with Claire and Gia, and we earned every dollar back tenfold. This book shows you exactly how they did it and how you can too. So there you go. Don't take my word for it. That's Rand wow. Fishkin himself. Yeah. Well, you know, when he found out that I was interviewing you, he said, hey, I want to get in on that too. So no way. <laughs> oh, that's so nice. Of him. He is the <laughs> nicest, most generous, he really is. smartest person in the world. And you know what? Yeah. Just to uh, not to make this about me, on LinkedIn, you can click a button where anyone who posts on LinkedIn, you get a little notification. He's one of like five people. Mm. <laughs> 
<laughs> Whenever he posts on LinkedIn, I want to know what it is. And it's just like when he was at Moz, his content is so helpful. And because um, yeah. he was nice enough to do that, I want to mention Spark Toro. It's this audience research tool that's really, really interesting. And they even have a free version that folks can uh, can use. And I'm going to include a two-minute explainer video he did on this episode's website page. And I'll include a link to Spark Toro where you can learn more about it. So your specialty is in tech and software as a service, or as the cool kids say, SaaS. But I don't want listeners who are not in that space to tune this out because anyone in marketing can learn a lot from subscription marketing, if you will, because way too many companies ignore their customers after the first transaction when in truth the, the real revenue the majority of revenue comes from keeping customers which SaaS companies know all too well how to do or or should so mm-hmm. most everything we're going to talk about related to this book applies to non tech companies so i don't want folks you know tuning themselves out saying oh no i you know i work in industrial or you know something like that this is there's going to be some universal things and i want to read a brief excerpt from uh, the beginning of the book page 30 our mission in writing this book is the same as the mission of our business to help companies especially in tech be more customer led because it helps them deliver more value be more successful and be better places to work and grow this book will not give you a toolbox of tactics guaranteed to drive growth. You already know enough tactics. Rather than toolbox, this book will give you a blueprint for growth so you can choose the tools that are actually right for your company, your team, and your customers. This book will help you make better decisions about what to implement, when, and how. You'll have a system for making these decisions and reaching more predictable, meaningful growth. You'll get out of the haphazard cycle so many companies get stuck in. Getting out will require a shift in how you operate, but ultimately, it will relieve the time and energy burden by giving your team clear direction. And good news, marketing problems may have brought you to this book, but solving them will actually end up benefiting your entire business. So Gia, take us back to your life as a marketer before you had the epiphany that led to your to, to the your customer-led growth framework outlined mm. in your book, and I had to chuckle on page 91 later in the book, it was described as your headless chicken mm. days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, it was. I, I mean, this is probably a pretty common uh, phenomenon, one that I've heard a lot about too, where, you know, you're you're leading marketing, particularly at a tech startup where it's a very high-pressure environment to grow quickly. Um, And that's why I describe it like headless chicken, because it was like, I was throwing everything at this like growth nut that we needed to crack as a, as a business. And uh, there were a lot of eyes on me being the, you know, the lead of, of marketing for this, this company to drive new growth. Um, And I would have described it as a sort of marketing led type of company at the time. Um, so there was a lot of pressure and a lot of it was, you know, self, self, uh, directed pressure. Um, but I didn't want to let the team down. I wanted to, you know, excel in my role and, and do a great job. Um, so it was a pretty stressful time. I, I worked a ton, um, experimented a ton. I had a great time, but it was also much more, I realized, you know, later it was much more stressful than it needed to be. And I didn't have to throw so much spaghetti at the wall, so to speak. 
And you weren't relying on paid acquisition channels at that point, is that right? No, zero, not nothing like that. It was all inbound. Um, it was all, uh, you know, trying to get creative and run marketing campaigns and try to write the best content we possibly could and be, you know, thought leaders in the space. And the thing that we used to say was we wanted to make marketing so good that people would pay for it, the marketing. Oh, yeah. Um, so we, you know, put a lot of um, pressure on ourselves to excel at this. Not A big reason for that too is that we were marketing to marketers. So that was another added layer of we've got to be, you know, best in class here because um, we're marketing to our own people and they're looking to us for guidance on how to do marketing. So we needed to be that, uh, that good. Um, so it was you know, there was that pressure, there was the pressure of being in a high growth environment with a lot of eyes on us, um, you know, wanting to see numbers go up and to the right. And um, a lot of a lot of guessing that again, I, you know, I, I realized later, I didn't need to be guessing quite as much. It's not that experimentation is a bad thing. Of course, it's great. But I could have rooted my experimentation and my testing in a lot more customer insight and with a lot more confidence. And was that company uh, in Unbounce? That's right. Yep. And w- was that Ollie Gardner's company? That's right. Yeah. Oh, okay. You know, it's mm-hmm. funny. Um, this you may have done this, but at one point, their Unbounce uh, or Ollie, I guess both had uh, this enormous infographic about online marketing. <laughs> do you know what I'm talking yep. about? I do. And yeah. I had that printed out by a professional printer and mounted on a six foot tall foam core board in my wow. office. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So that was incredible. you. Well, no, that was actually, Ollie did that, um, I think, a couple of months before I joined the company. So the company was about 15 people. Ollie was the only one doing any kind of marketing, but he was doing epic marketing. Yes. Right? Uh Like epic. So that was the environment I found myself in. And again, you know, trying to be the picture of like what good looks like for marketing, uh, carrying that sort of legacy, giving giving Ollie a platform and a stage to do that type of epic marketing. Um, I had a major advantage. The fact that he, you know, he was a resource to me was a huge, huge advantage. Um, but um, it, it was it was a lot like the volume stepped up and the, but the epicness also <laughs> needed to continue. So that's what I mean about like headless chicken. Um, the standard was set really high and we need to, we needed to increase the volume, like, you know, pump, pump it up beyond that. So it was a very sort of um, chaotic, high pressure sort of environment. Um, albeit, like I said, I had a great time. It was super fun, but um, you know, we could have, I didn't. I didn't need to do as much guessing as I was doing, um, but I was in a very lucky situation for sure. Right, and uh, another important point: you had buy-in from the top. I did. You were not a marketer trying to explain that this was not some sort of uh, pixie dust that you, you you sprinkle around. That's right, and and most people are not in that situation. Right? right, like that. That was that was a very unique situation for me, and I was very grateful for it. But it's not typical. Yes. Well, and you know, you say uh, marketing that people thank you for. I mean, just ex- the fact that I remember. <laughs> I had that thing printed out and mounted mm-hmm. on a board for everybody to look at and for clients to, to use for explaining. And it said unbounce on it. Yep. That's a, that's some, that was some great marketing. So the, the second chapter of your book is about building a customer-led uh, team, which 
it might not necessarily mean you need to hire additional people. That's not what we're saying right off the bat, but you may need to form your your cross-functional team to get started. Mm-hmm. Explain why you have to have uh, a, a cross-functional team and, and what are the advantage of doing that and what's the typical resistance people encounter? Yeah, so similar to how you might form a team to tackle um, you know, growth or a team to tackle churn or, you know, basically like a special, special ops or, you know, task force sure. um, that you would form inside of your company that has a, that is cross-functional in nature where you've got, you know, multiple representatives from across the business. This is exactly the same thing. This is a cross-functional um, you know, type of project that um, warrants representatives from across the organization. If I'm describing, you know, a typical sort of SaaS company, um, it's really important that somebody from product be in the room for these types of discussions, right? When we're talking about learning from customers and having, you know, a customer lifetime sort of implications here and 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 company-wide growth implications here, it's critical that somebody uh, ideally in a in a senior role inside the product team is uh, you know part of this equation i would say that's probably the most critical person to have in the room other than mm-hmm. yourself um somebody from uh, customer success, right? People who are interfacing with your customers every day, who hear from them and engage with them all day long. That is also a really critical person to have in the room as well. They know what keeps customers up at night. They know where customers get stuck. Um, They're a great representative um, to have in the room as well. Um, Marketing kind of goes without saying, I think that's probably the most obvious, Um, but you know, the, 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 marketing's responsibility for typically brand uh, positioning and messaging, obviously all really critically important and, and an amazing outcomes of this type of work. And then of course, sales as well, because sales in addition to customer success is engaging with prospects and, and, you know, potential uh, customers all day long. They know what's coming in from the market. They're a great source of intelligence for what's going on in the market and what's new again because they have that level of engagement. So having these these sort of inputs into this project is really important, but it's not just the intelligence and the knowledge that these folks come with, it's also what they go back to their teams with. Mm-hmm. So it's not only what they bring in, but it's the the impact of this work having legs, so to speak, inside of these other teams and other departments. And that's critically important to getting buy-in across the organization. It's one thing to have your CEO or founder on board. It's quite another to have the leads of all of these teams on board. And then ultimately, um, you know, their their teams by proxy, the members of their teams by proxy. Um, it, it's the, the legs, the potential legs of this type of work span across the entire organization that you, like you mentioned, um, that doesn't happen if you don't have a cross-functional team. Do companies try and do this without forming a team? Oh, for sure. I mean, this is the type of work that we do with companies um, every day. This is what companies hire us to do for them. And a lot of times it's the founders or CEOs that will reach out to us, heads of marketing, um, sometimes it's head of product. And every single one of those conversations involves us asking about, you know, what what does the marketing team look like if they're not on on the call? What does the product team look like? Tell us about CS, tell us about sales. Um, we are 
part of our process is a like a half day workshop at the end of it where all of these folks are in the same room so that we can get everybody on board with what's involved. So they know that when we're kicking off the project, but they're also involved in the ultimate sort of outcomes and ideas and opportunities that come out of the project. It is a non-negotiable that these cross-functional folks are in the room for that. Good for you. It seems like it would be the kiss of death if everybody in the organization thinks, oh, this is a marketing thing. Absolutely yeah. not. It's not going to work. <laughs> You're smart to walk away from that. Yeah, that's, so let's jump to my favorite chapter. Don't tell the other chapters I said that, but it's the chapter on learning from customers, which we've touched on. Can you dig it? Learning from customers favorite topic. My experience has been that companies know a lot less about their customers than they either want to know or more perilously than they think they know about their customers. Why do you think that happens? Oh, so so many reasons. One of the one of the reasons it happens sort of the 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 um, earliest stage, let's say, version of this happening is that companies are often started by people who have the problem that their solution ultimately solves. And this is very typical with a tech startup. So it will be, you know, somebody maybe technical or on the product side. That's where they side. say, we already know our customers because we are our customers, right? That's exactly right. <laughs> That's exactly right. I had to chuckle when I read that in your book. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And so these these um, these product founders or more technical founders, typically in the early days, many of them do do the right thing and actually do do meaningful customer development and talk to customers when they're in the in the development phase of whatever their offering is. The thing that that often happens though is that over time things change. I mean, this is this is true in tech, but it's also true outside of tech. But things change very, very quickly. Technology changes very, very quickly. I don't need to, you know, that's that's not shocking in any way, shape or form. But our products evolve, right? Our, our products, you know, our, we add product teams and multiple product managers and engineers, as tech companies do, and then our product evolves. And it evolves in such a way where the value that it's bringing to the market has changed. And then I just mentioned the word, the market, and really, obviously, like the market has changed dramatically. <laughs> and right? is changing. Right, and it will forever. And and the market has changed in some pretty significant ways. One of the ways that has been true for you know the past 10, 12 years, and one example that I like to tell that you're definitely familiar with is like Scott Brinker's, um, you know, marketing landscape that he started in 2012 or 2010. I can't remember what year he started it in, but I think it was 2012, if I'm not mistaken. And there was 150 MarTech tools. There are over 11,000 now. This, just this one space of MarTech, I'm not talking FinTech or EdTech or HealthTech or any of that, just MarTech has grown 7,250%. So the competitive landscape, the options that your customers have 
are is dramatically different than it was even just a few years ago, let alone the fact that COVID changed absolutely everything about how companies run. And then add to that, on top of that, the economy in the past few years has also changed things really dramatically for how people are making purchase decisions. Churn, so for recurring revenue businesses, retention is everything. And churn, so customers, you know, canceling and leaving has is the one constant since COVID, it is up, right? Just churn is up across the board consistently for the past three years. So it's harder and harder for recurring revenue businesses to keep and retain their customers. So there's more competition in the market. You know, there's, so the, the, Basically, I'm I'm telling I'm going on and on about how the market has changed, right? Customers' expectations have changed, and the economy and and the world has changed. And so your product evolves, your the market evolves, your team critically evolves, right? It's not just you anymore. What you know, the value you bring to the market and why your solution matters and why it's valuable can't just live inside your head as your team evolves. And so for all of those reasons, we end up sort of falling out of that deep understanding of who it is we're even marketing to, who our target customer, who who our product is even for. Yes. And this is under a part of the book where you talk about why you need new research, because, you know, people feel that they probably have checked that box and they don't yeah. need to move on. They'll, you even said there that there's this attitude of been there, done that. We did tons of research when yeah. we developed our product. But there's another part here that is just worth repeating again and again, which I won't. But it's building a product in the first place is one thing. Learning from customers' experience, actually using it is another. I couldn't mm-hmm. agree with you more. And that I would also argue that's why you shouldn't stop doing <laughs> Yep. customer research. You should be doing it at least every quarter, if not uh, continuously. So mm-hmm. one very interesting point, another point in that section is explain how relying on past research can give you answers to the wrong questions. So I would say, I mean, there's there's many types of research. So, and I think, you know, if we look to, again, I'm going to describe a, a typical SaaS company here. The product team is generally doing UX research of some kind. That is, the goals of UX research is very different than identifying who your best customers are or understanding your best customers. Marketing is probably doing some type of audience research. Where are mar- where are our target customers hanging out? Right? What are their watering holes? Um, using tools like SparkToro and things like that. Like, what's the market doing? But our customers, those who have, who are getting value from our product today, they're paying, right? They've, they've put their money where their mouth is. They're not just saying they love your product. They're actually continuously paying for your product and they're getting continued value out of your product. There's, there's nobody's opinion that's more important than them. It's not to say that UX research and audience research isn't important. It's wildly important, but it's important to layer on top of the foundational understanding that we need to make for customers. Now, why it's important to not just rely on historical research is for all the reasons that I said before, you're your offering has changed from a year ago or two years ago or three years ago. Certainly, even if your product hasn't changed, it's certainly changed. Its value in the market has changed since the economy has changed. The way your target customer 
talks about and thinks about the problem you help them solve has changed. And for that reason, it's, it is important to do this type of research. Like you said, you know, quarterly, even if you did it biannually, you would be in a way, way better position. Um, because again, the market is ever changing and evolving and you can't just go back to research that, you know, you did a year or two ago because it's a different world that your customers today are making a purchase decision in. Whenever I was dealing with a client and we were talking about customer research, some Weisenheimer would bring up Henry Ford. And I always <laughs> braced myself and started to wince. And you know what? You hit it too. It's almost like, oh God, I've, I've seen this movie. I, and it doesn't end well. And you, you write, um, Henry Ford has been famously misquoted as saying, and notice I said misquoted, misquoted mm -hmm. as saying, if I had asked my customers what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. People often take this misquote to heart and assume talking to customers is a waste of time. Customers aren't product experts, after all. But talking to customers is only a problem if you take what they say at face value. Explain why customer psychology is more important than customer opinions. Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, critically, critically important. And this happens a lot with research, right? <laughs> Poorly conducted research is a very real phenomenon. And I think that that's probably, you know, a, a huge reason for resistance to research is that people have witnessed poorly conducted research way too many times, uh, you know, in their careers. So, um, the the problem there with poorly conducted research is that we, you know, we ask poorly framed questions, um, like garbage in, garbage out, right? And yeah, like, so, like, what do you want? Yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> terrible thing to ask. Exactly. So it's just it's a it's a result of poorly conducted research where you would end up with you know more questions than you started with, um, or answers that lead you in the wrong direction. Um, but a lot of times really like poor, poorly conducted research just sort of dies on a shelf because nobody's really sure what to do with it or they don't, they're, they're always scrutinizing the responses and things like that. So the, the antidote really is to do research that gets to the heart of why people make the decisions that they make and why people do the things that they do. Um, and, and really unpacking what uh, Bob Mesta, who's you know one of the original co-architects of the jobs to be done methodology, he sort of describes it as this like documentary, right? You're 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 not asking them to ha to you're not asking them why they did things. You're not asking them why they made certain decisions. You're asking them to to describe what they did so that you can you know, see the patterns and understand uh, why they're making the decisions that they're making, that they're, that they're making. You're not asking them what they want. You're just asking them what happened. Um, tell me about what happened so that you can sort of, you know, see beneath the surface of that. Yeah, that was really important in the book where you say, you know, talk to them about what happened. Yeah. It seems like that's a great way to get away. <laughs> away from the opinions yeah. just what yeah. what happened what happened why and do you, you love our tool like yeah. it's, you know it's, this is not a useful question to ask yeah enough about our product how much do you love our product yeah and you mentioned bob messa he's uh author of demand side sales 101 and he wrote the forward to the book which was excellent so he did yeah let's talk about the concept of jobs to be done uh 
popularized by the late Clayton Christensen from Harvard Business School. And on this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com, I'm going to include a link to a Harvard Business Review article about jobs to be done, authored by Clayton and a couple other folks, as well as a short video where he explains the concept in just uh, just a few minutes. So I love, love, love how you boil it down to just three things. <laughs> the struggle that motivated customers to seek a desired outcome. The struggle that motivated customers to seek a desired outcome. So can you walk us through how to, to find customer jobs to be done, mm-hmm. focusing on the struggle, the motivation, and the, the desired outcome? And I'll come back in about 45 minutes and see how you're doing. No, I'm kidding. But <laughs> Seriously. You, but if you could just sort of briefly talk about, about those three things, because I just love how you zeroed in on that. Again, that's something you could have turned into 100 pages. Mm-hmm. And once again, I thank you for your clarity. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I, I, it was – look, Jobs to be Done is a – complex multifaceted methodology that you could have multiple episodes of this podcast on. And I, I would recommend, um, you know, having Bob Mesta on to talk about even just demand side sales, let alone any of his other books. Um, we tried to simplify it as much as possible knowing that the folks reading this book are not interested in becoming research experts. Um, We want to try to get to the heart of what is it that we need to understand about our customers so that we can make better decisions about the experience that we provide to them so that we can, you know, get better um, customers, better product fit customers through the front door that stick around for a long time and get a ton of value. That's the essence of this. Mm -hmm. So one of the, um, most important things to understand is the job that your customers are hiring your solution to solve. And when I say that, what I'm, what is implied there is that there is a job to be done, which means there's a situation that needs to change, right? Your customer is, is sitting in this with the old way, struggling with the old way. And there is a moment where they decide or a period of time where they decide we can't do this anymore. I, I don't want to live like this anymore. Mm-hmm. And that is a critically important moment to understand. And, you know, it, it's an, a critically important moment to understand because what's going on in their world? What led to that situation, you know, even emerging in this person's life? What was so painful about the old way? And then importantly, while they're still in this sort of struggle phase, what do they what do they do? Who do they talk to? Where do they go? What are their influences? Um, you know, how do they make a a short list of of options? Um so that's sort of that's we we refer to it as in later chapters as like the struggle phase is like what really getting at the root of the pain that your solution solves. We talk a lot about you know pain and agi- agitating the pain in in marketing world, but then you land on people's websites and all they're talking is about is like the solution and the benefits. Yes. What about reminding people about the problem and the pain that you want to help them solve? Right, we are not in a vital economy. We are in a painkiller economy. And so understanding how your solution is a painkiller is critically important right now. And if you don't understand your customers struggling moments, like, like I'm talking about, you are not in a good position to position your product within the market today. Yes. So, and I love that. And I, I, I hear it all the time and I don't think too, enough companies take it to heart. Are you selling vitamins or painkillers? That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
So that's the struggling moment. Um, now, tipping over into sort of the, more the, the motivations side of things is like, what are people looking for? What are the must-haves? What are the deal breakers? What are the, you know, even anxieties that people may have around firing the old way? And understanding that sort of psychology of how they made a decision to choose your solution over all of the others. This is another reason why uh, doing research with your existing customer base is critically important because you want to learn from people who have made this decision, mm-hmm. who experienced this and did choose your solution over all of the others and really understanding what actually really matters versus you know, what you might think is important to them or what features you think they, you know, care about or what, um, you know, the product team might think is important or how you might frame the benefits of your solution. It's really much, you know, you're much better off framing your solution through the lens of what your customers have actually said is really important to them. So that's that's the motivations part of it. And I can't resist. There's a phrase you have in the book about uh, describing customers pry their hands from it. Yeah, you want to learn from your customers who you, who you would have to pry your product from their cold, dead hands. Yes, <laughs> love it. Yeah, um, these are the customers that we want to prioritize learning yes. from because again, they've they've made this decision, they've experienced all of this. Why would we guess? Why would we go to even prospective customers when we can learn from customers who have been through it and chose us? Um, and then the other side of this, of course, is what are they able to do now that they weren't able to do before? How did they describe that? What is that better life that we have helped create for them? And also really interestingly, especially for recurring revenue businesses, is what is their next challenge, right? How have they evolved and changed since they've become our customer and how can we continue to help them over time? So that's that other side of things, the more desired outcome side of things where um, I often say this is where recurring revenue businesses and SaaS businesses get really interesting, right? When we start talking about value growth and value expansion, um, there's a lot of opportunity sitting on the table there. And and we rarely get to it because we haven't figured out this struggle and motivation and desired outcome stuff. Um, but it's uh, it's a, a huge advantage and outcome of this type of research. But generally, we have got bigger bigger fish to fry, so to speak, in terms of like positioning and messaging and learning what actually matters to our customers. But this is the linchpin, I think. You know, they, we all want to marketers we all want to say oh we we have the secret formula we have uh, there is no secret sauce but i think this is really at the epicenter of it and as it has been in my experience and even you may be familiar with the book uh, buyer personas by adele ravello she she talks about the, these five insights you need to go get and the very first one she talks about is exactly what you have here when i struggle mm-hmm. and like the even had some training from her and she she says you know you don't have any scripted questions except the first one which is almost what you said take me back yeah. to when you first decided and basically yeah. you go on to you know people may have 200 things they're supposed to be working on what was it <laughs> that made yep. this suddenly bubble up to something that you actually had to take action on because we'd rather not have to take action or, or do things like that. Yep. <laughs> so you, sure. you write that one of the biggest mistakes you see companies make is trying to solve all of their customers' jobs at once. Mm, yeah. talk, talk about that quicksand and how to avoid it. Yeah. I mean, what often happens when you know we work with companies when we go through this type of research is we discover that there are multiple customers sitting within you know somebody's customer base. So um, if I back up for one second – 
I've mentioned a couple of times, you know, learning from your existing customers is, you know, the the place to start, but not all customers are created equally. And so we do want to, when we do research like this, we want to segment down to those customers who are happy, right? They're happily paying and they're getting continued value. Even though when we segment that, that group of customers, so like the cream of the crop customers, the, the pry it from their cold, dead hands customers, mm-hmm. even in that scenario, we identify multiple jobs to be done within that segment. And so sometimes it will be, um, you know, jobs to be done that like different customer jobs that, um, you know, the company is surprised at, like they thought they were, they were targeting one customer group. And then we, they actually discover that there's a whole other group of customers that have shown up that are maybe even more valuable yes. than who they thought their original customer job was. And that happens a ton. Mm-hmm. Um, so we often discover two, three, sometimes even four jobs to be done within that one customer base. And oftentimes we are in a, you know, the the position where we have to advise the companies that we work with to pick one. And it, that can be really hard to do. But in some scenarios, honestly, it's the the best possible, uh, you know, thing outcome from this work because their team gets to be so much more focused on this one customer job that they serve really, really well, which we've all heard this, you know, old adage, if you're marketing to everybody, you're marketing to no one. And that's exactly the scenario here. If you can hone in on that ideal customer job to be done and that ideal customer, um, it is a, it's going to be a higher quality, better, you know, better fit customer that is easier to onboard, lower cost to acquire, sticks around for longer, is happier with your solution. Like it's that rising tide that lifts all ships. Basically, if you can narrow your focus to who you serve really, really well. Um, And that can be very hard to do for companies because, you know, we want everybody. It's hard to turn away customers. Again, especially in a market like this, you don't want to deter people from spending money with you. But at the end of the day, it is hindering you. And yeah, you can call it quicksand. It it, it makes it hard. It makes everything harder when you're trying to serve that many more people, that many more use cases and scenarios. You won't be as resonant with your marketing. You won't be as resonant with your positioning and messaging. You won't be as resonant with your customer onboarding experience. Um, nothing will quite land, you know, as well as it would as if you were, you know, focused on one of these customer jobs. So it can be a tough um, decision to make. There are rare situations where a customer can indeed pursue, you know, two customer jobs at the same time. It's a, it's a little bit trickier, but it can be done. Um, So it's not a, like, it's not necessarily a baby with the bathwater situation. You could focus on one and then another, you could try to tackle two at the same time but that's kind of the you know level 102 of this and i wouldn't recommend uh you know doing that out of the gate yeah try to get one and you write that once your top priority customer job is chosen you'll have the most valuable guardrails money Mm. can buy and also for the doubters out there in this chapter you explain why none of what you would have done up to this point is guesswork (laughs) it's based on customer data folks yep so uh, later in the book there was an a you wrote about another epiphany, uh, which occurred while you were visiting a friend working at Airbnb's office in San Francisco. Tell us about That's that. That's right. 
Yeah. So Lenny Rachitsky, who uh, he's kind of a big deal. <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with Lenny. Um, so he's very popular in the product management space. He's got a very popular newsletter and podcast uh, today. But back then, um, I you know, happened to be lucky and, and knew him personally because he lived here locally for a couple of years while he was incubating his startup. His startup was eventually acquired by Airbnb. And when I was in San Francisco, he invited me over to the you know, the headquarters there. Um, and so when I went down, when he was giving me, you know, a tour, he was giving myself, so head of marketing and also head of customer success, Ryan Engley, who was sort of my, you know, right hand at Unbounce at the time. And he and I were touring around the office and we went down to the, the, um, the space where the product team was working, quite a big product team. Um, Lots of um, chaos. Um, it was right. a really whiteboards cool everywhere and papers everywhere. Yeah. A paper, right? Like, I mean, this was uh, probably twenty. I believe it was twenty thirteen. Um, and so it was kind of a chaotic space, but it was really sort of inspiring. Uh, the whole office, and they had a very distinctive sort of customer journey that they had designed, um, and it was it was printed out on sheets of paper and sort of scotch taped to the wall. And um, it really struck me because it was through the lens of the um, Airbnb hosts experience. I'm sorry, guest, starting as a, as a guest, evolving all the way through to being a host. So you can imagine it was quite lengthy, right? I believe it was something like, you know, 10 or, or so sort of stages long, um, which is a different scenario than I was in, but I could still recognize the like the the flipping of the of the script so to speak on this is not a customer life cycle this is certainly not a funnel um this is about the customer it it was completely through the lens of the customer and i just i was like why why doesn't everybody operate like this it just made so much sense to me and both ryan and i stood there and we were like oh yeah we we're doing this and we um, we got home. We got you know we got back to to Vancouver. And myself, Ryan Engley, head of customer success and co-founder Carter Kil- uh, Carter Gilchrist, who's head of product. So we sort of locked ourselves in a room and and developed our own version of this. And it was really, really powerful. When we brought it to the team, everybody was like, sort of had a bit of a eureka moment. Mm-hmm. I remember. Um, I, I I was talking with our like CTO uh, Carl, and he and I had this like understanding from that moment on about you know some of the language that I've been using to talk about customers. He got it. It was it was a big moment for us in terms of like clarity around what are we doing, who are we doing it for, what is everybody's role in this experience that we're creating for customers. It was it was really really great. Um, and the the business benefited. I often describe it as like, you know, when we're focused on helping customers reach their goals, you know, you know, are the business reaches its goals, like we will ultimately reach ours as long as we're, you know, making sure that we're focused on customers achieving their goals. And that's kind of how this, you know, operationalized within the business, which was, you know, a really important step in this process, because customer research is great. And talking to customers is great. It has, it is useless if it dies on a shelf. <laughs> We're going to talk about pirate metrics now. And 
pirate <laughs> metrics, which has been mentioned on the show before in the book uh, Marketing Metrics by Christina Inge, pirate metrics refer to, now listen to the letters, customer acquisition, activation, revenue, retention, and referral, or R. Now, I only mention pirate metrics because on page 93, you write generic frameworks like buyer journey maps and pirate metrics center on the business getting value rather than the customer getting value. So in our you know remaining time here, talk, talk about how to briefly, <laughs> because this is a longer <laughs> chapter, but talk about how to put your customer experience framework into the jobs to be done concept, which has to do with... Uh, the customer getting value and, and follows what you call the struggle evaluation and growth struggle evaluation and growth. Mm-hmm. And, and within yes. each one of those is thinking, doing, and feeling. So I, there's like a nine, there's nine, nine, nine blocks, you know, across the top of the whiteboard, it would be struggle evaluation, growth. And over on the left, it would be thinking, doing, feeling go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for that. Yes. And there this is, is an audio visual. only podcast. So I That's apologize. Right. Yeah. There, there's a visual in the book to help sort of illustrate this. Um, but yeah, they are, look, pirate metrics is part of the reason why I got into SaaS in the first place. I remember sitting at a, at an event, um, you know, and with Dave McClure talking about pirate metrics for the first time, I think it was like 2011. And I was like, yes, everybody understands that marketing has a role to play post acquisition, like Eureka. I, and I, and I was like, I'm, I'm going to work with recurring revenue businesses forevermore because they get it. And so and we're not I, minimizing pirate metrics. They're, totally. They are important. I, I, hugely important. And, um, you know, it, again, it was a big reason f- for this entire process sort of uh, coming to be this role of marketing and post-acquisition. Um, but the idea basically is that they are generic. Um, the majority of them are generic and assume that all customers are the same. And I recognize that saying there are three phases to the customer experience, struggle, evaluation, and growth sounds generic. But what is not generic about it is that within each of those phases, your you know, unique product and offering, your unique customers and their businesses, if you're in B2B, I need to go through certain sort of leaps of faith in order to make a purchase decision, onboard, activate, get to meaningful continued value, and eventually value growth within, you know, their their experience with you. And it's important that we understand what these milestones are for our product and our customers. And so that's the process that we describe in that chapter, which is, yes, it's quite a, a lengthy chapter, but it's basically the the process of taking this documentary of why somebody, you know, met and fell in love with our product and operationalizing it and, and, and basically applying it to this customer experience map through the lenses of, Yes, struggle evaluation, growth, and thinking, feeling, and doing so that we can identify what are those critical milestones in our customers' relationship with us that we should be thinking about that ultimately help us determine what our leading indicators of success are. And what I mean by that is, you know, how are we going to know that we help customers reach their goals and, and, and reach a moment of value is making sure that each of these milestones are measurable in a meaningful way. But there's no way to identify these milestones if we don't 
go through this process of, of, you know, knowing what our customers are thinking and feeling and doing and really intimately understanding them to identify those, those various leaps of faith in our customers' relationship with us. Well, you talk about, you know, uh, is the customer achieving their goals? My first question to the company would be, do you know what their goals are? Yeah. <laughs> and well, this is assuming we do, right? Well, right. Because I know, done, but it's yeah. sort of like a lot of companies are thinking, I don't know, I got their money. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> mm, yeah, that's that's the opposite of what we're going for here. <laughs> there was a book on the show a couple of years ago by Joey Coleman called Never Lose a Customer Again, and he's more recently mm-hmm. written Never Lose an Employee Again. Phenomenal books. And in the In each of those books, there's like eight steps you go through. And in Never Lose a Customer Again, there's a, you know, steps five, six, seven, eight. Those are after you've got the customer, but most companies aren't even thinking about, well, what are they trying to accomplish? (laughs) What is their job to be done? Are they achieving it? Are we helping them achieve that? He said most companies uh, drop the ball there. So what's also interesting is that this bigger chapter you have an example threaded through the whole thing of what you did for Spark Toro. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, you know, once again, uh, Ran, he's just so generous. He just like, look, this is what we did. This is, <laughs> this is how, this is how it worked. So it, yep. it was terrific. Yeah. And I, I enjoyed that, but just a couple of the quick things mm-hmm. to ask you about the, the book, or as they say, but wait, there's more. <laughs> Chapter seven shows you how to measure the success of yes. this CX map. And I, I tell you what, Page 104, where you show it all together, like in an illustration, it's worth mm. the price of the book. I just loved this approach. It's, and part of it is that, I know this wasn't your intent, but it's almost like you're tricking the clients into thinking about their customers. <laughs> <laughs> did not our intent at all, no. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, it's sort of like you, you, so much of this has to do with talking to your customers and, and finding out from them. So it's like, you know, most companies are like, no, nah, I know what it is. Uh, here's what they're thinking, yeah. I, I suppose. So, but you talk about how to measure the success, uh, how to tie your performance to your customer's success. Your That's performance right. to your customer's success. Sweet. So for those not familiar, just step back for a second. Explain the difference between a leading and a mm. lagging indicator. As mm-hmm. I think... If I had to guess, most companies are not looking at leading indicators. Yeah, I, I, not in a not in a meaningful way. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, setting way too many targets and goals, like team goals around like MRR growth, for example, like revenue growth targets. That's not actionable. What's your team going to do with that, right? Um, your team needs to be thinking about what can I do, what action can I take to move the needle in that direction. And if you can give them leading indicators of success, these KPIs, um, they're going to know what action to take and what experiences to build uh, for your customers in order to influence those lagging indicators of success. So for each of those milestones that I was describing before, We should have a measure of success for our team to know that they've helped a customer get from one milestone to the next. The really critically important thing here is like, yes, thinking about the customer, um, you know, centering the business around the customer. But what that actually means is your team knows what experience to provide customers at what time. It's, It's the you know, the right message at the right time sort of promise actually operationalized for your team so they don't have to guess, right? It's, you know, the, oh, they need to build a, an onboarding sequence of emails. Well, 
you know, look to that customer experience map, see what customers are thinking and feeling and doing, understand how you're how, you know, what you're working on, how the success of what you're working on is going to be measured, again, tied back to customers getting value. And that team member has got a ton more clarity on what to say, what not to say, what experience to provide, not provide, right? This particularly, this happens a lot with SaaS companies, and software tools, well, we'll throw the kitchen sink at our customers when they sign up. But that's not always the most, I mean, it's never the most appropriate experience. But how do you introduce your product and in what order and in what way, Mm -hmm. you know, the person responsible for building that experience has all the answers that they need and the measure of success for is this program effective or not by going through this process and having this customer experience map, basically this customer's experience operationalized in this way. Yes, you're right. Lagging indicators are critical to keep an eye on, of course. They're just not actionable. They Mm -hmm. tell you what's happened, but they don't tell you why or what your team should do next. So just like an example, I think with SparkToro was like – they were not. It was. It gets a little more granular, but it's like: are are the people signing up for the free trial, or are they? Uh, they they were taking some other micro step, and that's how they could determine if that was going to lead them to the to the next phase, right? That's right. Yeah, it's you know we we talk about it like product activation um, and getting to first value. The term that we use is always first value because every team's got a different way of talking about onboarding and activation and, and you know product usage. So we we like to talk about it in higher level terms that are easy for everybody to understand. How do we get our customer to first value that that has nothing to do with entering a credit card, right? Mm-hmm. Helping our customer get to first value means something to show them that the problem that they showed up with, right, is is likely to be solved with this solution. You don't have to get them to full value realization, but very quickly after somebody signs up for your solution, you should be showing them some type of indication that they're on the right path and that this thing is worth pursuing and spending their time on because people are fickle and they you know they get hungry they they need to go for a lunch break or they want to go grab a coffee or it's the end of their day there's a lot of reasons not to come back to your solution i think it's 70% of all people who sign up for a product log in once and never come back and so this is our shot to get them to first value so that's one example mm-hmm. of how you know the KPIs are rooted in delivering customer value because it's about getting them to first value versus entering a credit card or something like that. So for SparkToro, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily about signing up. It was about signing up and taking a meaningful action because if they didn't take that meaningful action, that customer was probably lost. Right. And so it put SparkToro in a position to be able to reach back out to that customer and say, hey, don't forget, this is why you signed up. Don't forget that you can do, you know, take this action and sort of remind them and be sort of proactive in getting them back into the product. And then if they don't take that action, being reactive and and sending them communication to try to win them back or get them the help they need to be successful and things like that. So it puts you in a really powerful position to be able to deliver, you know, messaging and communication and experiences to your customer that are relevant to where they are in their customer journey. And I would love to get that <laughs> as, a, <laughs> as a customer. So last thing I want yeah, to ask exactly. you about was uh, towards the end of the book, there, page 127, you write about something that just spoke to me on a deeply emotional level. And you write, your toolkit is complete. You've done the research. You've identified your best customer's job. You understand the phases of the customer's journey, the milestones they encounter with your product, and the customer-led KPIs needed to measure progress. You're on the precipice of predictable, meaningful growth. And then 
Gia, you have a four-word admonition that I've been told throughout my career whenever I've been given additional responsibility, and the sentence <laughs> is, don't fuck it up. Idiot. Gia, explain what you mean. <laughs> explain how companies could fuck it up at this point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's the same as anything, right? You know, we get busy, uh, like I said, you know. But I get the impression this happens a lot. Yeah. They've gone through this and then it's like, hey. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I There's a lot of reasons why, you know, companies can fuck it up at this stage. And generally it's because um, there's a lot of pressure. And um, sometimes we can lose sight of things in when we get caught into the you know the day to day and we're stuck in the sort of weeds of execution it can be very easy to forget that we have this amazing resource um and we can fall back into old patterns very very quickly of guessing and like I'll just you know I'll, I'll just I'll write put this, this all on a shelf after it's done like with all the rest of the dusty binders that's it with the with the research right like along with our you know customer interview uh, transcripts and stuff just going to off to die so we just old habits die hard right and so that's really what that is about is making new habits building new habits around this and if you can you know incorporate the KPIs, you know, to your team's performance goals, if you can incorporate customer, you know, the customer milestones into your project briefs and your campaign briefs and things like that, then it has a much higher likelihood of, you know, continuing to be useful. Um, but you have to build habits around it and you've got to integrate it into the day-to-day or you've done it all for nothing. Oh, I, I just, if I were you for a moment, I, I would think that if I were to work with a company like you and Claire do and you all get all this going and then they just leave it alone and don't do anything. It might just break your heart or, or it's make heartbreaking. Your, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, and it happens. Look like, you know, we've, why did we make this decision again? Why are we using this language? Why are we sending this email at this time? And we're like, let's go back. And we go back and, and look back at the, at the, you know, the milestones and what people are experiencing at various, um, you know, stages and, and, oh, right. Okay. Right. 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 And I remember, I'm like, you know, why do we, you don't need to guess the answers are here. Uh, and so it's, but like I said, it's, it happens to the best of us. Old dab, old habits die hard. But when it does happen, I have a feeling that this is what you're thinking. No, God, no, God, please. No, no, no. So, Gia, if readers took only one thing away from your book, what would you hope it would be? Oh, exactly that. You don't need to guess. You do not need to be guessing. Um, and if you have any level of, you know, uncertainty or lack of confidence in your, you know, team's ability to make good decisions and smart decisions, um, and that they're, you know, thinking strategically enough and able to make a big enough impact, it's that, you know, there is an answer. Um, you do not need to guess at this. And, you know, the answer is locked up inside your best customers' heads. You just got to pull it out. And it's not that hard to do. It's not that frightening. And that's right. Go back to my agency days. I can always remember the quietest the clients would ever be is when we were sharing with them like video of customer interviews or specific things from the customers. And it's just, it it gets rid of this uh, hippo, you know, the highest paid person's opinion in the room. I think we should do this. I should, well, let's, uh, or as the sports guys say, let's go to the videotape. (laughs) That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Oh, what's one thing a listener could do today to put in action one of the ideas from your book that we've talked about just to get them 
going in the right direction? Yeah, that's a, a great question. I mean, honestly, thinking about the the customer's experience holistically, um, you know, for once and actually trying to draw those lines between those, you know, a, between the milestones like I was describing is a great place to start because it will probably highlight for you the gaps, right? Yes. The knowledge gaps um, that you have. And so that might help make it really obvious. Another thing that we like to often, um, you know, uh, recommend is running like even just a, a simple web survey. Um, and we have templates for this in the, in the, um, in the workbook, like you mentioned. So it's very easy to get this up and running, but what that can also show you is whether or not actually, you know, you do understand your customers and who's coming to your, to your website, even if it's just one little indication. Um, Cause if you can get that win under your belt and, and teach the team something, you will likely get buy-in to do a bigger research project. So you can start with a small research project to, just to sort of, you know, prove it and then dig in a little bit more with actually running customer interviews. Yeah, isn't it? It's funny when you do something like this and you realize, ooh, uh, we got a real blind spot there. I didn't realize that was going on. And you quoted Teresa Torres, product discovery coach, where she said, because maps help us externalize our ideas and relieve our working memory, (laughs) we often uncover unintended consequences of our ideas, which which can lead to better ideas. Oh, it's terrific. 100%. Yeah. yeah. Well, looking back, what books have most inspired your working career, Gia? Oh, wow. This is such a tough question. So, you know, early on, um, you know, if I think about early on in my career, I didn't do a lot of reading. Honestly, opening a book, <laughs> you're not going to like to hear this, opening a book put me to sleep. Um, I couldn't for the life of I me I have stacks away. of those books in my office right now, which have not been featured on the Marketing Book Podcast. <laughs> not everybody's a book reader. You know, some people, uh, yeah. it's just not where they get their information, and that's fine. Yeah. Well, I have to say, though, uh, in the past, I'll say five years-ish, audiobooks have, like, you know, revolutionized my reading. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually do a lot more reading via audiobooks. And that's why, actually, recording an audiobook for our book was so important to us, because I'm an audiobook-only um, type of reader. So... Um, the books that I have enjoyed a lot, actually, one I, one I made an exception for, I actually read a physical, I, I was lucky enough to get an early copy, and it was uh, April Dunford's Obviously Awesome. Oh, yeah. Very she sent me book. an early yeah, so she sent me an early uh, version of her book, so I actually read that in a PDF. <laughs> I didn't oh, even wow. have the physical book, and I and I that that book was and still and remains hugely hugely influential. Not only from the from what the book contains, but even how she wrote the book. Um, and she has a new a big, book. She does. It's yeah. called Sales Pitch. Um, that I that I did. She doesn't have the audiobook for it yet, so I bought that physical copy because um, it was important. I I still need to read that one, but I kind of know what's in it already because I have had a couple conversations with her about it, and it's awesome. And I would highly recommend it to everyone. Another book actually that April recommended that I read that I really enjoyed was The Jolt Effect. Oh yeah. Um, that one. I'm you know as a marketer, I I. I often put blinders on or, you know, historically put blinders on to sales, um, you know, just for, I don't know why. I mean, it's, it's sales and marketing has a contentious relationship. And I often, I was like a a little anti-sales early in my, uh, earlier in my career. And I really did appreciate that book. And I, and the same for April's, um, 
uh, sales pitch. And then actually, I already mentioned this book, Bob Mesta's Demand Side Sales um, was fantastic as well. Um, huge, definitely really important read. And then actually Never Lose a Customer Again was also great. I read that oh. a few years back. Uh-huh. Um. I mean, those are the ones that come to mind. They're, I mean, the list is is long. Oh, at this I know, point, and those are great, great books that you've talked about. And I interviewed uh, Matt Dixon about the Jolt effect. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll include a link to that uh, interview as well. That's amazing. Great but one. you know, you you bring up a, a very important point uh, about the challenge for marketers to keep up with the, the sales folks, and that is why. And <clears throat> no sound effects, okay? But it is one of the soapboxes I stand on. The most okay. successful marketers. <laughs> have a better understanding of sales, what the salespeople are doing, what the yep. sales looks like, the sales uh, process looks like. More importantly, what the buyer process looks like, which we've yep. already talked about here. And otherwise, uh, and, and there have been over 60 books on the show about sales, just because I feel so strongly about wow. that. And I get yeah. so many great ideas about marketing from reading sales books. And mm -hmm. there have been a number of authors of sales books who say, you know, if you're not spending at least a day a month with your salespeople, uh, if you haven't met your salespeople, <laughs> you, oh, wow. you are at risk of being an arts and crafts party planner who works in the make it pretty department. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, thank you. This is this whole interview, your whole book. It's like a big support group. You know, I thought I was taking crazy pills, <laughs> Gia. So at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including uh, all the books that have been mentioned, your website, and a link to the workbook, your LinkedIn profile. And now a word to you, dear listener, please reach out to Gia. Thank her for writing this book. Thank her for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast, putting up with the host's foolishness. Guests on the show love hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners, not just because they're so ridiculously good looking, but just because they want to know, you know, did, did somebody actually listen to this this interview? And and they love answering questions. So I've heard from a lot of guests who said they they've, they've enjoyed hearing from folks. Uh, but if nothing else, I mean, share this interview on LinkedIn and tag us so we can at least thank you. And if you're listening on your smartphone and you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Apple Podcasts, all these things can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. Closing quote. You didn't think you were going to get out of here without a closing quote. You came, you came to this book because you're tired of guessing. You've tried what feels like everything to more predictably drive new traffic leads and signups. Maybe you've spent months working on content marketing and thought leadership pieces, thrown money at paid social and search campaigns, tweaked and optimized the funnel every way you can think of, but more new tactics to generate more leads to bring in more sales reverts you back to marketing in a Petri dish. Shots in the dark, spaghetti, you know the metaphors. Bottom line, what got you to this point in your business won't get you to scalable, sustainable growth. Up to now, you've had to guess because the typical view of marketing as a funnel flattens your view of customers' real experience. It gives you a starting point, sure, but eventually it just muddies up which opportunities your team should really pursue. That's why the customer-led growth framework requires you to forget the funnel and see your customers as living, breathing, whole people you're in a meaningful relationship with because you are. The book is Forget the Funnel, a customer-led approach for driving predictable, recurring revenue. The authors are Georgiana Lottie and Claire Sullentrop. Georgiana, Gia, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This was really, really fun. And thanks for digging in with me. Can you dig in? <laughs> 
And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the entrepreneur, author, and motivational speaker Jim Rohn, who said, Formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. <laughs>